It really is great to be here with you this weekend. Uh, I've realised that uh, we have many connections already. Peter Charles and I were chatting at breakfast this morning and we realised we have the same hairdresser, even though he lives all the way up in Port Macquarie and I'm down in Cogra. There are other connections as well. The Chapmans used to be at uh, Ashfield Presbyterian Church, where I have some good friends, and Ian, the principal at the PTC, who I think was here with you last year, uh, is over there at Ashfield. Uh, and I think the Mortons are here. I've been emailing Laura. Uh, there they are. Hi. <laughs> uh, and you're related to Dan Morton, is that right? Yeah, okay, great. So I know Dan from Hurstville and from uni. And... So we've got some connections already, and I'm sure there are others. I'm really looking forward to spending some time getting to know you, so please do come and say hi to myself and to Lynette. We'd love to chat over the course of the weekend. More important than all of that, of course, is the fact that we belong together in Jesus because of what God has done for us in him. Uh, and we share fellowship because of the gospel. I'm looking forward to sharing with you this weekend uh, on the theme of hope, uh, and I'm keen to make that as interactive as possible. Uh, one of the great things about a weekend away context like this is that it can be a little bit more relaxed uh, than perhaps a week-by-week -week church service can be, uh, and therefore I'd like to make it as easy as possible for you to engage with me and to ask questions. Of course, we can do that over morning tea, uh, we can do that over lunch and in free time this afternoon, so please do come and chat if, if you've got any questions or comments you'd like to make. But I'd also like to say, if you want to stick your hand up halfway through the talk uh, and ask a question or make a comment, I'm very open and keen for that. I'd love to have some backwards and forwards discussion, even as we go and as we open the scriptures together. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the God of all hope and we praise you because through the resurrection of your son Jesus you have given us new birth into a living hope that will never perish or fail or spoil. And we pray that as this weekend we open up your word together, we pray that you would meet with us by your spirit and help us to understand more and more of all that you have done for us in Jesus and all that you have promised yet to do for us in Jesus and that you would fill us with hope that we might live lives that please you while we wait for Jesus' return. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, well, the 7th of March 2009, not that long ago, two years ago on Monday, is a day that I'll never forget. It was the day that our third child, Jemima, was born. A day of great joy. We named her Jemima Hope Smith. Jemima, after the third of Job's three daughters who were born to him after his suffering, who were the most beautiful in the land, and we thought that was very appropriate for our little girl. We named her Hope because uh, that's what she represented to us, as any new baby does. A new life, a gift from God, purely from his grace, born into an old and dying and decaying and pain-filled and sin-scarred world. Jemima Hope. We didn't know how appropriate that name would be until when she was three months old. Uh, we found out that she had serious problems with her kidneys, uh, kidney reflux problems that meant every time she went to the toilet she was in severe pain, uh, crying and screaming, unable to sleep. And that on top of that as well, she had severe gastro reflux. And so it was so painful for her to breastfeed that she was just giving up on that. And so essentially she was starving herself. She was not putting on weight. Uh, even though she'd been born as a large baby, 
very quickly she started becoming smaller and smaller and until she was way off the bottom of the scale of where babies should be. And she ended up spending a week in hospital. Uh, they put a nasogastric tube in and then she came home and for six weeks we, had a, we were feeding her with a syringe through a tube into her nose and into her stomach. And during that time where we didn't know what the solution was going to be, we didn't know what the future held for her and whether she'd be able to feed properly, whether she'd be able to put on weight, whether she'd grow, what that was doing to her brain development, all of those things that go through young parents' minds, as I'm sure you can uh, appreciate. Jemima's name was a great encouragement to me because we named her Jemima Hope, because we worshipped the God of hope, the God who even beyond whatever's happening in our life circumstances, is able to bring life out of death and newness out of decay. The first week of December 2006 was another week that I'll never forget. It was in that week that my brother, my younger brother Byron, was in his just finishing his final exams at Theological College. He was young, 26 I think at the time, uh, reasonably fit, uh, highly intelligent, uh, full of promise, a godly man, uh, married for not long, perhaps two years, just finishing his final exams, ready to go out uh, as a leader in the church to preach the gospel, to love God's people. And uh, he went to the doctor because he'd had a, a sore throat for a number of weeks. He hadn't gone during his exams because, well, you know, he had to focus on the exams. And he was a young man, and young men don't go to the doctor with sore throats. And uh, it got so bad that he couldn't speak. And he decided, well, maybe I should go to the doctor now. And so he went to the doctor, and the doctor discovered that he had a three centimetre by three centimetre cancerous lump on his esophagus at 26 years old. It was too close to his major veins and arteries that they couldn't operate. And so they put him on radiotherapy and on chemotherapy. And for the next year of his life, he lost his hair. Uh, he was very, very sick because of the chemotherapy. And we had no idea what his future held. 7th of March, 2006 is another day I'll never forget. Same date as the birth of Jemima three years earlier. It was the date that good friends of ours, Kayleen and Craig, rejoiced at the birth of their first child, little Jacob. He was a long-awaited child. They'd been trying for a number of years. He was their first. They were looking forward to his birth. They'd been praying for his life. The only problem was he was born at 26 weeks and within 10 minutes of his birth, he was dead. And that's just the things that have happened in my life, in my little circle, in the last five years. And I'm sure if we went around this room and asked for the stories that are in this room, there will be many, many stories like that. For those of you who are older, there'd be more and more stories because these kind of stories just multiply with age. And these kinds of stories are signs for us that we live in a world that is scarred by sin. That's not the way it's meant to be. A world where there's something wrong with everything. And so my question this weekend, and I'm sorry for starting with such heavy topics, but if we're going to talk about hope, we've got to deal with the reality of life as it really is in the world. 
And my question for us this weekend is, how can we live with hope in the face of that kind of world? Of course, it's not just us. It's bigger than that. It's broader than that, isn't it? Richard Balcom, an English writer, English theologian, surveyed the 20th century and put it like this. Horror must surely be one of the most prominent features of 20th century history. The period since 1914 has been the most bestial in recorded history. In wars and genocide, political torture and state terrorism, in the two world wars, the Holocaust, Stalin's reign of terror, Vietnam, the killing fields of Cambodia, Bosnia and Rwanda, literally hundreds of millions have died. This of course is far too little. We must add the millions whose deaths from starvation were preventable but not prevented. Those, including many children, still subjected to slave labour and the currently 22 million whom famine, war and oppression have made refugees. And of course in the few years since he's written this we could add much more, couldn't we? We could speak about tsunamis and bushfires and earthquakes and more. And this is the reality of the world in which we live. It's a world that is scarred by sin, a world that's not the way it's meant to be, a world in which there is something wrong, even with the best of things. And so my question for us this weekend, as we turn to the scriptures together, is how can we live in that kind of world with hope? And the good news is, and the big point for this weekend, if you take away one idea, I'd like it to be this that God is the only source of real, substantial, living hope in that kind of world. Because this is God's world, because God is committed to his world, and because in Jesus, in Jesus' death and resurrection, he has begun to renew his world. We're going to turn to the Bible in a minute and to that passage in 1 Peter. But before we get there, uh, just uh, by way of opening up this topic a little bit more, I thought it might be worth exploring some false hopes, some unsatisfactory, some sub-Christian responses to the reality of life in a sin-scarred world. And I've got four of them there listed for you on the handout. The first one is despair and bitterness. And this is a kind of response to those kinds of realities I've just talked about that is completely understandable, isn't it? You can see why people who are faced with suffering and hardship, particularly people who are faced by repeated suffering and hardship or particularly intense suffering and hardship, develop hearts that despair of any hope in the world or develop hearts that are bitter and cynical with no room for hope. And so it's a response that you can understand and perhaps you see that response in yourself sometimes. You see yourself despairing, giving up hope, or you see yourself growing bitter and cynical and hard-hearted and cold towards the world. It's an understandable response, but it's not a Christian response. Don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about clinical depression or all sorts of mental illnesses which are themselves part of the problem with the world. I'm not talking about those kinds of things over which we don't have much control, uh, in some cases no control. What I am talking about is a refusal to trust in God, a refusal to hope in him, a refusal to recognise that this is his world and that in Jesus he has begun to make it new. It's an understandable response, 
but it's not a Christian response, at least not in the long term. Many of us will go through periods in our lives where we despair, where we struggle with bitterness. Uh, And I think that's a normal response to the kinds of realities that I've spoken about. But as a long-term option, as a settled disposition, as a way of being in the world, it's not a Christian response. Yes? First, thanks for the question. That's great. I'm, I'm glad you've had the guts to <laughs> ask the question. That gives me a second to think about it. Um, yes, I think in part that's the, the kind of response, that's a good example of somebody who uh, had fallen into grave sin. Uh, of course, he was destined for that sin in the mystery of God's sovereignty, and yet he was responsible for it. And he'd fallen into grave sin. And yes, despaired of any grace despaired of the chance of repentance. Yeah. The second kind of response, I'm going to jump to number three there, or C, is human effort. I've called it politics, economics, law, medicine and education. Uh, This is the response that I see in a friend of mine uh, who I went through uni with, uh, who was part of the Christian group with me at Sydney University, who I prayed with, uh, who I planned with, who I worked with, Uh, to see the gospel of Jesus go out to university students at Sydney University when we were there several years ago, who since we left university has walked away from the church and as far as I know, walked away from the faith, walked away from the Lord and yet is still committed to changing the world. Uh, She's a lawyer and so she's packed up her bags with her husband and she's gone to London uh, and she's working for an aid organisation over there as a lawyer on a, on a much lower salary than what she was getting working as a lawyer here. And it's a fantastic thing to do. It is great work that she is doing. There is so much good coming out of it for the people who are dispossessed, in poverty, in all sorts of difficulty, who she is representing. It's great work to do, and yet she's doing it without reference to God. She's doing it in the hope that by her efforts and the collective efforts of the people in her group and the collective efforts of people like her, doctors and lawyers uh, and educators and all sorts of professionals, all sorts of workers, that through our collective efforts we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and change the world and save the world and make it a better place. So don't hear me wrong, it's good work that she's doing and yet if we put our hope in that kind of work, we're going to be disappointed. Because that kind of work by itself, apart from God, without reference to him and to what he's done for us in Jesus, is not going to change the world. And we're going to be left at the end in bitterness and despair, back to response number one. It's an understandable response, but it's not a Christian response. The third one, and I think this is much more common in our society, at least in the circles I move in Sydney, I've called Eat, Drink and Be Merry. This is the retreat from the big hopes, like my friend in London, the retreat from the hope that we can change the world by our efforts into the small hopes, the things that I can control, the things that are easy to access, the things that will give me some joy and some satisfaction and some hope in the short term. So I've called it weekends and holidays and sex and chocolate. And we put our hopes in these small things that will get us through the week or get us through the day, things that we can look forward to We retreat into these small hopes, 
new pieces of technology to save our world. <laughs> and we look to them, we rely on them in little increments to fill our lives with hope that next week might be better. Once I finish this job, then oh, I won't be so busy anymore. Once I get to the weekend, I can relax and let my hair down and forget about all the stress during the week. We retreat into these small things and we put our hope in them. But of course, precisely because they're small things, they're only fleeting hopes. They satisfy us for a weekend or for a night or for a day, sometimes for a week or for a month, but they don't last. They don't provide substantial living hope, the kind of hope that can fuel your life. And then I've got a fourth kind of false hope or unsatisfactory response, and this one might be a surprising one. I've called it going to heaven when I die. Uh, this is often the way we speak about the Christian hope, isn't it? Uh, we speak about escaping from this world of sin and pain and difficulty, escaping from this body in which I suffer, and going to another place, a better place, where there is no sin and no suffering and no dying and no pain. And our hope is about escape. Our hope is about going somewhere else. Our hope is about going to heaven when we die. And that's understandable that we think about the Christian hope in those terms. There's a long tradition in the church of using that kind of language for talking about the Christian hope. It's in many of our hymns and in many of our songs. Uh, I just noticed last Christmas, we were singing the Christmas carols up at Cogra Hospital, uh, or maybe it was the Christmas before, and uh, we were singing once in Royal David City. And the last verse, uh, you might not remember it until I start singing, but I'm sure you will once I do. I'm not going to sing, by the way. I'll just say. <laughs> uh, not in that poor stable will we see him, but in heaven, seated at God's right hand on high. Uh, or even in our hymns, Amazing Grace, when we've been where? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. And you see how in those small ways, in many of our songs and our hymns, in the language that we use with each other, we talk about our hope as if it's escape from this world, as if it's about going somewhere else. Uh, in fact, Christians have been talking this way for so long that it's seeped into popular culture. And so we get things like the Philadelphia cream cheese ad. Do you remember that one from a few years ago? where you have the angels sitting in the clouds playing their harps, eating Philadelphia cream cheese. Uh, and, and we have those kind of popular visions of heavenly life, disembodied bliss on the clouds somewhere out there, but not here in this world of pain and suffering and sin and difficulty. Uh, it's even in The Simpsons. I don't know if you know the episode where Homer dies and goes to heaven uh, and has this beautiful mansion and watches on his TV as the earth is destroyed and left behind. Now, we've got to be careful here because there is, like many things, like many half-truths, there is some truth in this kind of language of talking about going to heaven when we die. Paul can say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So there is some truth in this way of speaking that those who die in Christ are with him, we might say, in heaven. And yet, what I hope to show you this weekend as we work through the scriptures together is that at best that is only part of the truth and that what God has shown us in the scriptures and what God offers us in Jesus is so much bigger, so much more substantial, so much more robust 
than the way we often think about Christian hope as going to heaven when you die. Yeah. Yes, I think it is. And in fact, that's where I'm going to start the next talk in the next session. Uh, I, I think we, we do long for something better because we were made for something better. Uh, in fact, we were made for God. And so we long for fellowship with him, even if we don't know it. But that's the next talk. So I might save that up for a bit later. Thanks for the question. Uh, as I said, I want to work through the scriptures with you. And as you look through this booklet, you'll see basically it, it looks long. Don't be scared. <laughs> It's basically just lots of Bible passages. Uh, we might do this a little bit differently than what, uh, I don't know what you've done in the past uh, or what you tend to do. Usually when I preach, I speak from one passage and work through it verse by verse. But to deal with a, a theme like this through the Bible, uh, I think it's going to work better for us to work through a range of different Bible passages. And so you can flick with me if you'd like and make sure you're looking at them in context. That's important to do. But I've also uh printed them in the booklet for you here so that you can see where we're going as we work through and basically we're just going to read them together and i'll make some comments as we work through uh, that's for later what i want to do now uh, before we have a look at one peter is just notice that this kind of going to heaven when you die way of speaking has at least three problems with it uh, in terms of the broader sweep of christian truth Think first about the broad sweep of the Bible. Where does the Bible begin? With, with creation, with a God who brings the universe into existence out of nothing, with a God who creates matter, who delights in a material world, who takes joy in the world that he's made, who looks at it and says this is good and very good. And then when he sees that the man is alone, creates out of the man's flesh and bones, a woman to be with him. That's where we begin in the Bible, with a creation, with a physical world, with a good world. Come with me through to the high point of the Bible, to the climax of the Bible, when God enters his world in what? Human flesh, in a baby, in a human life, in Jesus. Uh, or the climax of the climax, when Jesus dies a very physical death on a very physical cross and then three days later is raised from the dead in a body. And you see that whole sweep of the biblical story from Genesis right through to the gospel is about God and his love for his world, about God entering his world in Jesus, about God raising Jesus from the dead in a physical body. And so if the end of the story was leaving all of that behind and going to some kind of disembodied bliss, that, that would be a strange way for the story to end. And as we look through the scriptures over the weekend, I want you to see that's, that's not actually where the story ends. Second, if we think about the Christian hope as going to heaven when we die, as, as disembodied bliss, it leads to another problem, which is that sin and death have won. This is God's world, isn't it? This is the world that he made. This is his masterpiece displaying his glory, which he created and kind of hung up for everybody to see, his masterpiece. And yet sin and death have entered his world and like vandals have ripped and slashed and thrown paint over God's masterpiece. And if God's response to that is, well, let's just throw it out and give up on that world, then sin and death have won and God has lost. And so 
The idea of a world being destroyed and of us being taken to some other place leaves us with that big problem. Hasn't God been defeated by sin if that's the goal, if that's where it's all headed? And there's a third problem, which is that if we think of the Christian hope as going to heaven when I die, it can very often, very easily tend to be all about me. Have a look at this definition from the Oxford English Dictionary of Eschatology. Eschatology is a study of the last things. Uh, it's what we're talking about this weekend. It's, it's about hope. It's about God's promise for us. And the Oxford English Dictionary defines that as eschatology, the study of the four last things, death and judgment and heaven and hell. And when you look at that list, those four last things, what you notice is they're all about me as an individual. They're about, it's about my death, me being judged, and about whether I go to heaven or to hell. And my question is, where's God in that definition of the end? Where's the creation in that definition of the end? These traditional four last things are lacking in two really important elements of the biblical Christian hope. And so I need to turn to the Bible. That's a long introduction. That's an introduction for the whole weekend. I hope it's opened up the issue for you a little bit. Now I want to turn with you to 1 Peter 3 and look at the shape of Christian hope. I want to read it uh, with you again and then make four brief comments. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry, inquiring about the person or the time that the Spirit of Christ within them indicated when it testified in advance to the sufferings destined for Christ and the subsequent glory. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in regard to the things that have now been announced to you through those who brought you the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. Like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you invoke as father, the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb 
without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are set on God. I want you to notice four things. First, the Christian hope outlined here by Peter is grounded in God and in the God who keeps his promises. It begins at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. God is the source of this hope. God is the one who has given us new birth into hope by his great mercy. It's an interesting point that uh, was made over here that we all long for some kind of hope because it's been built into us by the way that God created us. And yet, having something to hope for is not something that we can presume. It's not something that just belongs to us because we've forfeited our right to have hope by our sin. God made us, God loved us, and then all of us in our own way turned our backs on him, starting with our first parents and said, no thanks God, I'm going to go my own way, do it my own way without you. And in doing that, in that first sin and repeated in each of our lives, we've forfeited our, uh, the gift that God gave us to have hope. And so if we are going to have any hope in the world, it's only by God's great mercy, by his grace, because he's generous. It's only on that basis that we have any hope. Uh, that mercy... That grace God spoke of beforehand, before it was revealed in its fullness through the prophets. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that was to be yours made careful search and inquiry. God is the source of grace in his mercy and God spoke about it beforehand, made promises that at the right time he would enter his world and reclaim his world for himself which we know, of course, he did in Jesus. And then having fulfilled those promises, God now protects his people for the salvation. Verse 5. You are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. And verse 21, therefore, Peter can say that your hope is set on God. You see, from beginning to end, from creation through to the last day, the only reason that we have hope, the only reason we can look forward to the future in hope is because of God and his mercy. Christian hope is grounded on the promise-keeping God. Notice also, secondly, that Christian hope is centred on Jesus Christ. We've been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's there in verse 3. You see, the first thing to... The second thing to notice about Christian hope is that it's not first and foremost about me and you. It's first and foremost about Jesus and about what God has done in him. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he has given us new birth into a living hope. That's reiterated in verse 21. Through him you have come to trust in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Not only is Christian hope founded on Jesus and what God has done in his resurrection... It's also focused on Jesus into the future. Did you notice twice Peter says that our hope will be realised, verse 7, at the end there, when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
or again in verse 13. Set all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when he is revealed. It's a salvation that God has made ready for us by Jesus' resurrection and that will be revealed in its fullness when Jesus comes again. And that's why Peter can say there in verse 4, you've been given new birth into a living hope, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. I used to read that as saying it's a salvation that is in heaven, that when I die and go to heaven, then I will enjoy it. But if you keep reading, you notice that it's a salvation that is kept in heaven for us and it's ready, end of verse 5, to be revealed at the last time. Same word. What else is going to be revealed at the last time? Jesus is going to be revealed at the last time. And so what Peter is saying is that when Jesus comes, when everyone sees that he is Lord, then also he will bring with him this salvation that has been kept in heaven for us. It's like when I was a kid and my parents kept the um, Christmas presents up in the cupboard. My mum was very organised. She often bought them in September, October, somewhere there. And we knew it once we were five, six, seven, eight. You had an idea that the Christmas presents were on the way. And they were kept up high in the cupboard, beyond the reach of standing on a chair, even beyond the reach of the stepladder, which you could get when mum wasn't home from down in the garage and go up to the cupboard. And right from the top, you just still couldn't reach. It was a present that was kept in the cupboard for you, waiting to be revealed at the proper time on Christmas Day when it was brought down from the cupboard and laid out in the lounge room and ready to be enjoyed and opened and delighted in on Christmas Day. And it's that kind of salvation that God has prepared for us, which is being kept in heaven for us, and it's ready to be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed, when he comes, when he returns. Christian hope, therefore, is centred on Jesus Christ. It's grounded in God and the fact that God keeps his promises. And because of those two things, Christian hope is also, you notice here, both something that we have now and something that there's more to come. It's both now and not yet. Have a look in verse 3. Already we have new birth into a living hope. That's something that's ours now in the present. Verse 8. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. Why? For you are receiving already now in the present. You are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 12, it was something, verse 10 to 12, it was something that the prophets spoke about in the past, but which has now been fulfilled in Jesus. It's the grace, verse 10, that was to be made yours now, already, in the present. And verse 18, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And so already now we've been bought by God, by the blood of Jesus. We belong to him. We know him as our father. We're his children. And so we possess this living hope now. And yet, there's more to come. Because we're waiting for the day when Jesus Christ will be revealed, verse 7 or verse 13. We're waiting for the day when the salvation that he has prepared will be revealed, verse 5. We do not see him now, verse 8, even though we love him. But one day we will see him. And so the Christian hope, although we have hope now, is also not yet. There's also more to come. Christian hope is grounded in God 
and the God who keeps his promises. It's focused on Jesus. And because of that, it's both now and not yet. And Christian hope is also the kind of hope that produces a transformed life. Christian hope is not pie in the sky when you die, disconnected with how I live my life here and now in my daily activities, in my work and in my family. No, it's deeply connected with my everyday life. Have a look at verses 13 to 17. Therefore, because of this hope, this now not yet hope revealed in Jesus based on God's promises, because of this hope, prepare your minds for action. Discipline yourselves. See how active, how definite, how concrete Peter is here. Verse 14, like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy, quoting Leviticus. If you invoke a father who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, then live now in the present, in the details of your life, in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You see, this Christian hope is not just something for then and there, it's something for here and now. It's something for how I relate to my wife, it's something for how I do my work, it's something for the kind of father I am, it's something for the kind of friend I am. It includes implications for how I spend my money and how I spend my time and what kind of holidays I go on and where I, well, the list is endless, isn't it? Christian hope is not out there and then. It leads to a transformed life. And that is the shape of the biblical hope that we're going to explore this weekend. How are we going to explore it? Well, over the page. I've got four last things, but they're not the four last things from the Oxford English Dictionary. That was probably a bad idea anyway to try and get theology from the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, I've got them from the Nicene Creed, which you might think, well, ooh, is that any better? Uh, yes, it is, because it's biblical. Uh, and I want to show you that as we go through the weekend. The Nicene Creed, I don't know if you know it, but it goes like this, written in the early 4th century. He will come again in glory. There's number one. So later this morning, we're going to speak about the return of the king. To judge the living and the dead. There's number three. We'll do that tomorrow morning, the day of reckoning, the day of judgment and his kingdom will have no end. We look for the resurrection of the dead. There's number two. We're going to do that later this evening. And the life of the world to come. There's number four, the renewal of all things. We're going to talk about that also tomorrow morning. So you see these four last things, not death, judgment, heaven and hell, as the Oxford English Dictionary would tell us, but the return of the king, the resurrection of the dead, the day of reckoning, and the renewal of all things. Those are the biblical four last things those are where god leads us to put our hope those are where our eyes need to be focused as we head forward through life for each of those i want to show you how the shape of christian hope that we've just explored in one peter permeates all of them i want to show you how each of them is grounded in god's promises and so as we look at the return of the king a little bit later this morning we're going to work through some of the old testament and look at god's promise to dwell amongst his people but they're going to show how it's centred on Jesus and fulfilled in God's coming to us in Jesus. Because of that, I want to show you how it's both now and not yet. And then finally, I want to show you how it leads to a transformed life. That each of these is grounded in God's promises, focused on Jesus, 
both now and not yet, and leads to transformation in the present. Putting it all together, the one idea I want you to take away from the weekend is that God and God alone is the only source of real, substantial, living hope in a world that's scarred by sin and death. Uh, when Jemima was sick, I said her name was a great reminder for me uh, of that reality. We named her Jemima Hope. Uh, and every time I spoke about her and every time I prayed for her and used her name, it reminded me that, yes, we were availing ourselves of the doctors, yes, she was in the hospital and, and being cared for well, but ultimately we didn't know how it was going to turn out. We didn't know what the future held. We didn't know where things would go, but God did. And therefore God is the only source of real, substantial, living hope. And so I want you to pray with me. Uh, this is the prayer I've been praying in the, the weeks leading up to this weekend and I, I hope that it can become your prayer as well and we'll pray it now in a minute. This prayer that Paul has for the Romans. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How about we pray like that now?